0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com.
1: All right, everybody. I am Matt Bird. Welcome to the Secrets of Story podcast. Here's our theme music. I am Matt Bird. Here's my co-host. I'm James Kennedy. I'm the author of Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. James, what are you the author of? I'm the author of The Order of Oddfish
0: and the curator of the
1: 92nd Newbery Film Festival. That's wonderful. So guys, we have amazing news for you. We have another special guest, our third special guest. We've actually got a little bit of a gender diversity up here in the house. We have someone who I have never actually met and never actually talked to and only communicating with just a little bit, but she is actually a blurber of the book, as is James. So we're having a little meaning of the blurbers here. Our special guest tonight is Parker Peavy House. I first was in contact with Parker before she was a published author. When she, out of the blue, sent me an email saying that she had followed the advice on my blog, Cockeyed Caravan, and it had helped her get an agent. And she wanted to thank me for that. And I said, that's wonderful. And then years later, I was turning my blog into a book and I said, oh, well, I should contact that author. I should check and see if her book actually came out and and how that went for her. And if it did, then I should trumpet that to the hills. And I went ahead and made a document to help pitch my book to publishers and saying like, oh, look, here's somebody who said uh, good things about me. So I was able to use your email to me to help me sell my book. And then I said, gee, I sure hope everything's going well for Parker. And it was. Your first book came out. It seems to have been very well received. That one was called Where Futures End. Then you published a second book. Let yes. me jump in.
0: I am in the middle of reading uh, Where Futures End, and it's incredible. I oh, love thanks. it. I have got it out of the library last night. Uh, I haven't finished the whole thing yet, but I am astonished at how good it is. I'm really, really uh, happy that I get to talk to you. Um, oh, wow, thank and you. I just want to just describe it a little bit.
2: Where Futures End, is yeah. a series of connected stories. Each one takes place further into the future, and each one shows what happens as we start to discover that our world is somehow entangled with another world, and we try to figure out what that world might want from us.
0: What did Matt's advice help you with on this? Because... Matt's advice is pretty much for movies. And as no, I was reading, all right, I was like, all right, all right. Well, I knew as I was reading gonna, it. I knew was thinking, I was
1: going to take on a ginger.
0: That is not true. As I was reading, I was thinking, if she followed Matt's advice, a lot of this wouldn't happen.
1: Um, <laughs> it's like there are so many very true. interior that things, not very true. weird things. Oh my God. You are really having it out for me this episode. <laughs> I knew it. All right. We are jumping way ahead, but okay, yes. Well, let's go ahead and before we get to that, you published this book, you published a second book, and now you've got a third book coming out.
2: Yeah, The Echo Room came out in 2018, and it's about two teens who wake up to find themselves trapped in a metal room. They don't know why, they don't know how they got there, and they have to kind of solve these this puzzle-like room to get out but they start to suspect that they might not be locked in so much as they've locked something out. Mm. My next book, which publishes January 14th, is strange... Thank you. <laughs> it's a strange Exit. And it's about teens who have survived a nuclear apocalypse, but they're now trapped in a simulation that was supposed to help them prepare for life after nuclear winter. And they've forgotten that it's a simulation. And so our main character, who does realize the truth, is trying to help them see the truth, and convince them to get out before the whole thing collapses.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm really looking forward to finishing this book and reading the other two as soon as I can, because I think you're brilliant.
1: Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Well, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad we can have a mutual appreciation society here. So let's go ahead. And James was already ambushing you and accusing you of trying to poison yourself with my terrible advice. <laughs> Let me go ahead and start things off on a high note and read, or do you want to read your <laughs> blurb? For my book, because that's how we got to know each other, and that's how that's where we're starting. You're
0: assuming here. that she just has a copy <laughs> of your book within grabbing distance I at will all times. Read it.
1: I will put words into your mouth about how wonderful I am. This was the email you sent me, where I, I think I then had you rewrite a little bit once I told you it was going to be a blurb for my book. Uh, or asked you if i could use it as a word for my book you said after i followed matt bird's writing advice i received an offer of representation from an agent who called my manuscript masterfully structured it is a testament to how helpful bird's advice has been i've learned more from him than any other book about writing and certainly more than from taking any writing class well Thank you, Parker. I have never had a chance to thank you properly for what a wonderful blurb that is, Parker. Um, should I also read James's blurb? Yeah, James why don't you really just keep jerking yourself off? Too. What yeah, on yeah. earth? Who I think I should read that as well. <laughs> I, I, Every day, I just call people up and go, can I read you words from my book? <laughs> and uh, and they do. So so that's where Parker, I, jump in at any that time. That was how I got to know I'm you. I really am this this email now James is saying that oh my god Parker Matt's awful advice would have ruined your first book I, I assume that's the book that the agent signed you for was where, where futures, futures end.
2: end yep yeah and it honestly it really was like a step above a lot of other things I'd written and and there were a lot of things that people have been criticizing in my writing for a while and after I was reading all their advice and putting it into practice with where yeah. futures end people were like this is like night and day you've done so much better at these things so
0: I, really, hey, it really Parker, so I, I know it's 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 asking too much to ask you to be this vulnerable, but you're being asked by somebody who really admires your writing. Could you tell me what it is that people were objecting to in your writing before?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that was hard for me before was characterization, because I love playing with big ideas and, and weird twists. And people would say, well, the characters are kind of getting lost. So a lot of it was advice on How to make a character who has depth, who's not just coming into the story and then suddenly grappling with an issue, but who has something from the past that maybe needs to be solved. And then how would they engage with the problem? And then like how they would arc over time, specifically with some of these deeper issues that they're grappling with. So I think before it was sort of, for me, it was like, oh, here's an interesting person. And then here's a problem. And now they're engaged. But I wasn't really thinking about what they would bring into the story before the story started.
0: Yeah, I never would have guessed that that was your problem because your characters are great. But the what I mean, you do something which not a lot of writers can do, which is that your ideas are huge and really interesting, Philip K. Dick level interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, and have you, did you hear? the Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Podcast? K. Dick. Yes, I, I listened to it twice. What we were talking about in that Philip K. Dick podcast was about how he has big ideas and weak characters. Have you read is it M.T. Anderson? Uh, oh, of course. Cut yeah. Novella. Have you, have you
0: read anything by him?
2: Uh, he's like my favorite author, yeah. So it's like, what's
0: that one like? Still life with something, something hand. It's it's invisible hand. It's like portrait
2: something. Yeah, yeah. Something so your hand.
0: story reminded me of that and of like George Saunders. Um, yes, yeah, thank the, the you. Kind of like I that was to channel. Economic George critique o- along with like surrealism, but kind of grinding poverty.
2: Yeah, what I love about George Saunders is almost all of his stories about a terrible job. And I was like, I want to write about a terrible job. So my second story in Where Future's End was my George Saunders terrible job story. And he's a genius, and I will never be close to what he does. But I was like... if. If, if this could be a fraction of anything like George Saunders, but no one has ever said that to me. No one's ever been like, is this, did you, were you inspired by George Saunders? So that's like my highest compliment.
1: Saunders-esque. <laughs> that's what, that can be your blurb. We should okay, just I need all a blurb have just a big circle of blurbs here. <laughs> Where, uh, <laughs> and, my, uh, my blurbs can... are worth nothing,
0: but I'll do it. <laughs> um, like so I Parker, agreeable. let's get to the meat of this. So we're talking about like how Matt's advice how, you, you know, know, it was kind of originally the structured. The idea
1: was not to talk about my advice. The idea was to talk about the, uh, the proposed topic Can of this I episode. Can I finish what? a sentence? A <laughs> the sentence. Proposed how about topic, one sentence. You Matt? are going off in the wrong direction. The proposed topic was, should novelists follow screenwriting advice? Not, let's all gang up on Matt. Let's attack Matt. Let's talk about how Matt will read novelists wrong. Should, as general, I was thinking no, more let's in terms make it of specific. like, I was thinking more in terms of like, you know, save the cat or whatever. It, yeah, you know, it just, just like fire general. away from you. But we're talking, you're the person who wrote one of these books. <laughs> Blake Snyder isn't
0: here. You're here. Your book is here. We've all read it. Let's talk but about your Blake
1: book. Blake I think one difference is that Blake Snyder was writing a book just for screenwriters and then novelists really loved it. And uh-huh. so, and that was really a case of novelists taking screenwriting advice. My blog was originally screenwriting advice. And then very That's early on. I was making. Very early on, I changed it to be for all stories, including novels. Yeah. Parker, what would you say (laughs) are are, like the differences, like the kind of
0: pitfalls that one can run into, like with uh, screenwriting advice being applied to a novelist?
2: I was talking to some different writing friends of mine who, so many of them swear by screenwriting advice books. Mm
1: -hmm. And I was
2: asking them a lot about this. And they were just like, no, no, no. The screenwriting advice is so important because it's so much easier to get structure advice when you can talk about a two hour movie. And then it's, it's, it's so much easier to like encapsulate it all. But yes. then, then where you kind of would lack when you're just looking at screenwriting advice is figuring out more about how to include interiority, which I feel like I generally am not great at It's Just like the character's thoughts and just them kind of like going off and, and talking about like assessing the situation or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And then nuance because a movie has to fit into two hours. And so there's less chance of just giving the the viewer a ton of details and saying, why don't you put these together? So then novelists have to kind of grapple with, well, if I have all these details, how do I make them come together without sort of simplifying them too much? You know, like keeping, keeping some of the nuance in the novel.
1: Do so you think that's one reason why screenwriting advice helps novelists is because you can start with sort of a simple core, the the core of what would be the movie, and then you can build out from there?
2: Yeah, I think it helps so much with structure because if you're looking at a novel and trying to learn structure, you're you know you're taking days to read it and then you're finally thinking about the structure and it's just too hard to hold it all in your head in, at once, I think. But then mm-hmm. yeah, then it's hard to see like well then where does the screenwriting advice come in for? things that novels do that movies just can't do, like the interiority.
1: Do you
0: feel that this kind of screenwriting advice, it's kind of like a corrective to a novelist's anarchic spirit, and they need to be kind of put under the kind of, I don't know, discipline of this a little bit, knowing that they're going to run away and be crazy anyway, just to kind of force them to be a little clearer or a little more structured? Or, like, because when I was reading your book, like, clearly, this didn't come from a formula. I mean, it came from this big like, ungovernable idea, and then maybe you're able to tame that, the, these big ideas and this kind of genius flowing out of you with the screenwriting advice?
2: I, I think when I'm thinking about a story I'm going to write, I don't usually do any outlining or anything. I just kind of come up with some ideas and think about some backstory and brainstorming. But what I what I usually do is think about what type of story and so for example, in Where Futures End, it's five stories that are connected, but each one is a different story type. There's a heist, there's um, like a problem solving, there's like a coming of age. So it helps to know what screenwriters would say about that type of story and how it, how it would be structured. So I think I kind of s- started with like maybe ungovernable ideas like you're you're saying, but before I get very far, I do at least try to think about what type of story it is so that I know generally what shape it's going to take. I feel like a lot of, Writers who I know probably grew up just as much on movies as on books. So I think actually there might be just a natural inclination to follow a movie structure even when you're writing. It's
0: also easier to talk about because maybe not everybody has read your favorite Ray Bradbury book, but everybody has seen, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever. Um, But but then it kind of leads to an unnatural flattening of the discourse like time and again and I have like Matt cut it out of some episodes I keep going back to Star Wars or Harry Potter where it is Mm the lost ark or something like that and I'm realizing like my examples are so circumscribed by certain kind of things that are a cinematic b basic and c yeah basic c kind of uh the like so well known I'm afraid that by internalizing so many rules that are based on things that are iconic, you're just going to make pale copies of these iconic things.
1: Well, I mean, in one of our previous episodes, you know, you were like, like, Oh, you know, according to the Dan Harmon theory, then in the middle, they should go down in the basement where there's a snake. And, and I'm like going, wait a second. You're just basing this off Star Wars and Raiders of the Last Ark, both of which literally have a moment in the exact middle of the movie where they go down in a basement and there's a snake. And this is, <laughs> we're just obsessed with these stories from when we were six.
2: So and Harry Potter also has a base. Basement snakes.
1: They get flushed themselves down the toilet and go to the snake in the basement, which is <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so very Freudian.
0: That's a pretty basic take, Matt, but we'll let it pass. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, so th- there's this kind of tension between the clarity that sk- screenwriting advice can give and the kind of like handful of canonical things that we talk about because everybody's seen them. And there's a tension between that clarity and the kind of ungovernable kind of chaotic necessarily ungovernable and chaotic creative instinct that leads to actual new ideas.
1: No, I mean, that is the fear is that you're like, how can I use some of this advice to make myself more universal to the degree that the word universal is a good word to tell a story that has a universal meaning? Like, where is the fine line between universal and derivative? Is Yeah.
2: And the I, other problem I, is what? YA readers are really looking for a specific thing and they're very comfortable with a certain book. So if you want to get outside that box, you're really risking a readership because that format is what they really like. And so it's great to to follow that advice if you want to get readers.
0: Yeah, but not if you want to get, you know, self-respect. I'm saying this to you because you do not do that. (laughs) No, people
2: say they're like, how did you get this published as YA? This shouldn't have. And I'm like, I know it shouldn't have. I never, I truly believed it would never get published. This was the book I wrote. When I had lost my previous agent, because I was like, uh-huh. Oh, thank goodness I can finally write whatever I want to write and I don't have to worry about it being publishable. And I wrote it and my friends were like, No, this is good, you should at least try. And then um and then I did get a publishing deal and I was like, Are you sure? Like nobody's no nobody's asking for this in YA. And then that's usually people's response. It's like, how did this get published as YA? And I'm like, I don't know.
0: That's exactly what happened to me. I had an agent. I
1: wrote this book. She dropped me because of the book. I did not realize that she specifically dropped you because of Brighter of the Tornado. Yes. The one that your new agent signed you for. Yes. Okay, well, that's fascinating. And I know you are resentful of the fact that I myself read Brighter of the Tornado, and I said this isn't for me. And then you were very hurt by that, resentful of that, and now you feel very vindicated that then you found a new agent for it that loves it. So you are feeling, you are feeling sort of the opposite of Parker, where you feel like, but I basically said like, maybe this one isn't the one you should go out with. And it is the one you went out with and you got an agent with it and you're selling it right now. And you are totally right, and I was totally wrong, and you're totally vindicated, and I'm totally humiliated. But you <laughs> but Parker is had a Parker had a different experience. She felt like my advice. She wrote an equally odd book, is what you're saying, that Private tornado.
0: Hers is you more adventurous both. than
1: mine. Hers is more adventurous than yours. Yeah. And yet she is saying that uh, she is giving me credit and you are you are condemning me. You are damning me. Okay, let's get down to brass tacks.
0: We've been talking about generalities. Matt has this idea in his movie advice and his novel advice, but it's originally derived from his movie advice of believe, care, and invest. You know about that, right, Parker?
2: A little bit. That's like his his series going on right now.
0: That's great. Right. So I think Matt should give a quick precease of it, and then we should see how that, how do you feel about seeing how that uh, uh kind of applies to novel writing? Because I think believe, care, and invest is enough for maybe movies, but I have more things that I want to add to that, that I think are necessary for a novel. But maybe Matt should talk about it. So right now, my
1: new book, I wanted to call it Believe, Care, Invest, How to Make Everybody Fall in Love with Your Hero. And my agent was like, no, let's aim it more squarely at the book market, or not even squarely at the book market, but let's go ahead and say more specifically, Believe, Care, Invest, How to get everyone to fall in love with your hero in 10 pages or less. The basic idea of Belief Care, Invest is that most people will only read the first 10 pages of either your novel or your screenplay or your books or your comic script or your anything, because if the character hasn't grabbed them at the end of 10 pages, they're just going to stop reading. It's just over. And so that is the most important thing. So I wanted to write something new that was focused more on that and specifically on three things. And then I've spent the last couple of years looking at books and I'm going to soon look at movies and say like, okay, how are they getting us to believe, care, and invest in the first 10 pages? Which Tell is us to what say, you mean by believe, care, and invest. Which is to say, believe in the character, believe in the reality of the character, believe that this is a real character, not a fictional character, which is usually due to odd specific details. Care is do they care for the character, usually a result of the character having some sort of suffering, uh, usually because some sort of maybe shared embarrassment with the reader where it's like, oh, I really care for this person. And then invest in, which I think is the one that most people, it's one that often writers fail to do. And I think it's a big part of this. Can we see that you have whistle of steam, you have problems, but I can see what you can't see, which is that you have awesome things about you. And I think that's a big part of what readers need to do is that they need to go like, oh, I have a reason where I'm going to invest my hopes and dreams in this character. And so believe, care, invest. You read great novels, you look at great movies that tends to happen in the first 10 pages and stuff that doesn't sell, it tends to not happen. So Parker's book has this. In her first story, in it,
0: uh, there's a car- the main character is named Dylan. And uh, we believe in him because she does a very good job of talking about more or less modern day, uh, like Seattle, right, uh, Parker?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Seattle.
0: She very much brings that to like, she talks about like the way that Seattle smells, you know, his specific problems at school. And, but then Care, he's kind of like overshadowed by his older brother.
1: A universal
0: uh... Emotion. It, exactly. Yeah. And he's uh, kind of, you, you know, in trouble at school and he uh, kind of on the outs of his dad and has got problems with his mom. We, we see him suffering in various ways. And then we invest in him because he seems that he has this uh, power that I don't want to spoil. Uh, but we also see that he uses the power in a way that is kind of canny, um, even though he sometimes thinks he's using the power and he's not really. And sometimes, uh, right, Parker? Like in the class, in the philosophy class.
2: Yeah, that's the question. Is like, does he really have this magical ability or is he just really kidding himself?
0: Well, by the time we get to the second and third story. Yeah, you do know it's real. But yeah, there is a tension in that. But we see that he's resourceful and he he does things. And I I don't know, I think you really accomplished that. You accomplished it in all of them. But I was thinking about, believe, care, and invest with this guy. But I also think that there are other things that I'd like to add to Matt's list. If so believe is care, which I care is fine, but I would say sympathize. Care it's too broad of a term, and I, I like care because it's an Anglo-Saxon word. Sympathize <laughs> is a Latinate word, which is you know more precise but less emotional. Uh, but however, I think you mean sympathize every time you say care.
1: No, I you, you want to see somebody
0: suffer. You sympathize from.
1: That's how you always make it pay out. Right. I don't think you can always sympathize with the suffering. I think that there's stuff that w- there's stuff that we can care for, but not sympathize with, not empathize with, but still makes us care. Right? Okay. Well, let's bracket that. Let's bracket that. Uh, um, so believe, care, invest. But I,
0: especially for a novelist, the fourth thing I say is eavesdrop, which is we have to have some access, in one way or another, to their thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things, and I think this comes very much to our point. A lot of people who write books and then they read books about screenwriting advice, the screenwriting advice say, oh, don't use those Riley's, you know, that say, you know, he in parentheses, it says how you should say the line, yes. you know, or um, don't tell us in, you know, what they're thinking, you know, in the just have it all be very external. Right. If you do that in a book, it will die on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in a, uh, a book, you do the ultimate uh, eavesdrop, which is you could do first-person narration. Of course, in movies, they say, oh, the worst thing you can do is have a voiceover narration of mm-hmm. what they're singing. You know, that's right. like a big cliche of what you shouldn't do, right? And if I think in a book, especially, you need to be able to eavesdrop on uh, the main character talking to themselves, like, the way that Meg does in A Wrinkle Time, and, and they kind of almost in conversation with themselves, with their own thoughts. Um, uh, what do you think, Parker?
2: Yeah, this is something I'm terrible at. I This is, like, my worst time with writing and i think part of it is because i don't i've never seen any advice anywhere for a novelist on like how to deal with sharing a character's inner thoughts and feelings and i actually have um a writing friend her name's emily henry and she she writes basically the same books i write except that her books are like the emotional version of mine <laughs> and uh, Your books are
0: plenty emotional but go on <laughs>
2: And so what what I have her do is after I work on a draft, actually send it to her and she marks all the places where she thinks that it should definitely be some kind of thought or feeling conveyed here. And for me, I look at it and I'm like, shouldn't it be obvious that he's feeling disappointed when his mom makes this comment? And she's like, sure, but you have to we have to the reader wants to be in on that, like they want to know how he's feeling or what he's thinking in response. So for me, that's always stuff I have to add in, draft after draft, like trying to layer it in. I feel like I still don't really know how to do it. It's like a huge labor for me.
0: That's such a true thing that you're saying right now, this idea of like, shouldn't it be obvious? And, and like, I think mm-hmm. it's all it comes from a place of craft. You're thinking like, well, if I've done my job correctly and by putting these events in a certain order, it should be implied by the natural yeah. drama of the moment, what people are feeling. And you feel a little bit dirty when you write that right. sentence. So like he felt, he felt like a gunshot went off in his stomach. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we all, but we yeah, have it. to write that dumb, hacky sentence because emotions are dumb and hacky, right?
1: Yeah, I don't
0: I, like that. I, 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 see it, I see, that sentence because I've written that sentence. I'm not
1: quoting Parker. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I but mean, I just
0: think similar. About-
1: I think that in terms of these poor novelists being poisoned by screenwriting advice, I think that they can. There are multiple ways to show emotion. And one way to show emotion is to have first person telling us directly what the emotions are. Another way is to have third person where we get a little limited peek into their head and uh, the narrator is telling us what their emotions are. And another way to do it is to, you know, show their emotion through their dialogue or their actions or even embody the emotion in the environment. A gunshot went off in his is stomach like.
0: that the thinking. <laughs> What is going on with their body at that moment? Yes.
1: Well, there's yeah. that. Yeah.
0: It I always
2: her. rely on the environment. I always am like, at the, you know, the most emotional moment I talk about how cold it is or if it's foggy or whatever, like that's the only way I really know how to do it. And then and then my writer partner says, OK, and then also add in like some physical like reaction to his emotion or something.
1: Yeah, but you know, and what another you're way, saying is, and I think that one thing that when people, when novelists do take advice from people from the world of movies is that they're like, oh yeah, I, that reminds me, I don't just have to tell the reader what the character's emotion is. I can also find ways to embody it and show it in other ways. I, but I don't think novelists are actually going like, oh, and I'm not allowed to actually say what their emotion is. <laughs> Right, I don't um, think they're
2: saying, "Oh, I, sh- I probably shouldn't explain it." I think they, I think it's more like I haven't read screenwriting advice about that, and maybe for some reason I'm not writing, I'm not reading novelist advice either, and so I just don't know how to do it. But I don't think it's like, "Oh, I but, guess you shouldn't do that."
0: But you you would agree that you feel? Would you agree that you feel a little bit shy about writing? He was sad. Yeah. Because I do. <laughs> yeah, you know, I hate you feel that. feel like like sometimes you have. To to kind of hit the dumb, obvious note that feels like it's not craft to do. You know, feel like I should be able to do this in a fancier way, and you kind of have to sometimes just take the hammer and do it bluntly. And yeah, you're I have like, so well, many was- editor
2: comments that are just like, "Can you please just tell us though? Can you please just tell us right here?" And I'm like, "Fine," and then it's always like, you know, the same. I always hit like the same beat, like. Somebody is, I don't know, like crossing their arms and they're like, enough of the crossing of the arms. I guess another,
0: uh, another thing would be um, that Matt was saying, like, Oh, we can do all these various methods. And one of them was something that we mentioned on one of the Jonathan Oxier podcasts. So let's talk about things you could do in prose that you can't do yes. in a movie. And one of them is free indirect discourse. And what that is, it's third person that's inflected by the first person, yeah. point of view james wood uh, uh talks about this his iconic sentence is like like he listened to the concert through stupid tears mm-hmm. you, you know mm-hmm. and so like you you know how he's feeling but it's like you know that he is in contempt of himself for crying mm-hmm. but it's not saying he felt i hate that i'm crying because it's right. like it's third person so you're yeah. able to bend the the like the third person doesn't have to be a security camera just looking at these people nor does it have to be a ticker tape of the unconscious of just recording people's thoughts you could take this third person narration and bend it mm-hmm. uh with a kind of uh, value-laden words like he listened to the concert through stupid tears that stupid does all the work there no. of the contempt that he has for himself and this is a advanced technique that is hard to do but once it's done it's very effective and also You can't do that on screen. No. Yeah, it's it's voice.
2: And voice is probably the hardest thing to learn for any writer. And it's not something you can learn from screenwriting advice either.
0: Right, right. Although, like, Uh, you
2: know, a film can have a certain style, but that's, there's not very much of that you can convey in a screenplay. I know that a screenplay can have a style, but so much of that work has to be done with a camera. Yeah.
0: Yeah, an, an actor with a glance can do a lot of emotional work that like we would have to take a page to yeah. write down and then we realize I've read a whole page about how he feels and like nobody's gonna read this. I gotta cut it. But we're losing this uh, kind of complexity that uh, we would have had if we had just seen Adam Driver arch his eyebrow or whatever.
2: <laughs> I also wonder where your advice fits in, Matt, on the the moment where you have a character. Who's being misunderstood and and an underdog moment? I there's I don't know exactly where that falls into your checklist, but oh yeah, yeah that advice is is like my number one advice I always give people like have a moment when your character is misunderstood because especially in YA it's huge for a teen to feel like I'm being misunderstood and now the reader's like oh no like I really want to root for you now and I've I've actually included that in every book I've written and in the Echo Room. The main character that we see the story through, Rhett, wakes up. He doesn't know why he's in this strange metal room. And uh, he realizes that he's not alone. He's trapped in here. The door's jammed. The lock is broken. He finds that this girl who's his age, he doesn't recognize her. And he's like, oh, what's going on? Do you know why we're here? And she looks at him and sees that he has blood on his clothes. And he looks down. He's like, oh, I have blood on my clothes. It's not my blood. Don't worry. And in that moment, you can see that she's actually really scared of him because she's thinking, well, whose blood is it? And what did you do? And it's this moment where we've been in his head. So we know he's worried and scared and alone and he's going to this girl and thinking like, Oh, I, I, maybe I can help her. Maybe she can help me, but she's having a moment where she's basically like, stay away. I don't trust you. I don't know what you did. And he's, and he, so it isolates him further. And I think it makes us feel like we know from being in his head that he's a good guy but understandably, she's casting him in a totally different light. And I think it kind of bonds us to him.
0: That's great because it also doesn't alienate
1: us from her because she's having a reasonable reaction.
0: Yeah. I think yeah. Like the- I would
2: totally react that way if I were her.
1: <laughs> because we've been in their head. It's like you were saying, because we've been in their head we know that what appears to be the case isn't the case. You need to have this social humiliation at the beginning that mm-hmm. is somewhat justified, but then is outsized. Oh, I've been selling weapons to the Afghans and I deserve to be humiliated about that, but not to the degree to which Tony Stark is kidnapped by terrorists.
2: I was going to say with Rhett, it, it is true that he has someone else's blood on his clothes and he he himself is worrying like, wait, how did I do something? And so you know that he's a good guy and doesn't want to hurt people. And yet you also know that he's not 100% sure he didn't hurt someone. So it is it is like, OK, he does deserve a little bit of what he's getting, but it's outsized. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I think, I think that's huge. Oh, I, was never saying, take, I guess. Never, the... never take an
0: example of good screenwriting from, a, from Iron Man movies. Come on. <laughs> yeah. It's a great film. No, all the Marvel movies are trash. I'm on the Scorsese train. I the Irishman.
1: Like you liked The Irishman. I haven't seen it. <laughs> well, you know what I did like? The, mean Streets. I hate to tell you, the Scorsese train has just crashed. I hate to no, tell everybody you. Everybody loves it. It's, it's a great. terrible film. I don't no, like I'm Marvel like...
2: or Scorsese, so there you go.
1: Actually, you know, I, I, I don't. I, actually, I, I, don't. I
0: carry no brief for Scorsese. I just use him as a hammer to bash You're Marvel. Just... Oh. I, I so done. I was done
1: with Marvel. 10 years ago, and it just keeps going on. You're like, yeah. Parker, you're like the samurai in chimbo. Your you're like, I'm going to put the Marvel movies and Scorsese in a mo- movie and let them all kill each other and then all emerge triumphant. Wow.
2: That's exactly what I don't like about Marvel movies and Scorsese movies, is they're just like <laughs> grim fighting. <laughs> so, maybe not. It's I did think point. of one from from the second book, or the second story in Where Futures End, Yes. where yes. the main character... Brixney is working in this very strange restaurant, and this guy very is trying to.
0: George Saunders restaurant, where <laughs> yeah. people uh, have, they eat these, uh, Matt, they eat these heads that are <laughs> crafted uh, out of some kind of like uh, foam oh. like to look like various emotions or various celebrities. We put flavor <laughs> gel on them. And then, but there's all these cameras in the restaurants that they, they take. Am I right, uh, Parker? Yeah. yeah. Are, are you representing this correctly?
2: Yes. It just sounds so okay. weird when you say it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it it's, it's great. It's like I was I I said to my wife before I left to do this podcast. It's like she writes the kind of stuff I wish I was writing. Heather, and and, uh, that was very much a scene that that I wish I did.
2: The guy tries to place an order, and she he does. She doesn't do her job right, and he's like, "Well, you know, this is how you should be doing your job, and let me show you how the menu works." Which is such like a jerk thing to do to a teenage girl who's like, "I'm just trying to make some money for my poor family." But yeah, she is bad at her job, but. Um, he's just being so mean about it. And it actually happened to me when I was a teenage waitress, this exact scene happened to me, except instead of foam heads, it was like margaritas. There's like 10 different kinds of margaritas. And I don't, <laughs> I never had one when I was a teenager. And so this guy's like, this is not how you take an order for a margarita. Um, so that's like kind of her moment where people are not really getting that she's doing her best, even though she sucks at her job. It's like some of it's warranted, but it's outsized.
0: It's great. It's It's well done.
2: Thank you. I, I wish I could take credit for thinking about that, but, but it's just something that happened to me and I just kind of recorded it. And so that guy really did say those things to me. <laughs> well, <yeah.
1: laughs> if The more you base yourself on life, the less work you have to do as a writer because you're That's like, it's yeah. happened and it made me feel this way. And I don't have to figure out why it made me feel this way. Yeah. If I just write something true, then I'm going to capture the power of the situation in a way where I don't have to process it first.
0: Yeah. One should have pity for all writers who haven't had shit jobs. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: It's really not fair for anyone to not have had a shit job.
0: Right, yes. right, right. Yeah, yeah I mean, th- that is also true, but um, <laughs> especially in this context, yeah.
1: Yeah, certainly, <laughs> certainly you got a feeling George Saunders has had a lot of shit jobs. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've spent the last year or two on the blog taking bestselling novels and saying, like, okay, let's look at how the first 10 pages of this novel works and how, you know, they do believe Karen Fest and how they do these other things and why it works. And I've had this problem of, okay, you know, obviously I did Harry Potter and Hunger Games. Okay, I'll do Gone Girl and the very few books that everybody in the culture reads. But then I'm like, okay, I've got to do some books. You know, I want to stick to books that sold really well. And, but I want to do some books that are very literary, you know? So I did Book Loved and I did God of Small Things. And then I was looking for literary type books to do. And I'm like, well, I should do Lincoln and the Bardo because you know, this was a very literary book that was very a George popular. Saunders book for the listener, <laughs> I should do the George Saunders book, Lincoln and the Bardo, which was a very literary book that was very popular. And it is would be the most experimental book I had done. And I could do like, hey, everybody, I'm gonna break down an experimental book and see if it works according to any of the same rules. And of course, I ran into two problems. First of all, is that no it really doesn't it's a, it's the first 10 pages of that book are very weird they don't follow any sorts of rules which could be good i could go like oh look let's let's look at this rule breaking but then i realized that if i were to do that the last thing i would want to do is say hey look here's a guy who broke all the rules you should break all the rules in exactly the same way <laughs> It's like, oh, he shows the way to break the rules. So everybody write this down because you can learn from the first 10 pages of Lincoln and the Bardo, the correct way to break the rules. That is an inherent problem with giving writing advice is that, yes, I want people to be able to be brilliantly original and unique, but I can't tell them how to be brilliantly original and unique. I can't tell them how to break all the rules. You know, I can tell them over and over again, and I do. You can break the rules. You should break the rules. Break all the rules. Please break these rules. None of these rules I'm giving you are universal. If you follow every rule, your book will be terrible. Your movie will be terrible. But when it comes time to actually go like, okay, be like this guy who's breaking the rules, I have a real hard time doing that because I think that would be that would be a terrible thing to actually Because they literally called novels, which means something new. <laughs> That's an excellent point. <laughs>
2: I think it comes down to finding out why it still works when it breaks the rules and then show how, like, for example, if it gets you to sympathize with the main character, but not in any of the ways that you've ever given advice for, but it still stands that you have to get someone to sympathize with the main character.
1: I think I should probably do it, but it would be very hard to do. And so you are someone... Uh, Parker, who is currently being compared to George Saunders by our esteemed co-host James Kennedy. You are trying to straddle that line. You are going like, okay, you know, I'm going to have this tremendously weird cafe. (laughs) (laughs) The sort of things Saunders would write about. But horrors of horrors, I'm going to take a screenwriter's advice. Uh, a former screenwriter such as myself and you know add a traditional moment of humiliation so that we then care about this person in this tremendously weird cafe and you're counting on you're counting on yourself to go like okay but i'm not gonna kill the weirdness i'm not gonna make this formulaic i'm not going to iron this out i'm not going to flatten this even while taking you know advice for film which is obviously a literally two-dimensional medium (laughs) yeah i think the way that george saunders
2: George Saunders pulls it off because his voice is incredible. I think most of that, that's what people connect with when they read his stories. The the situations are very interesting, and you could take that same situation, and another, a writer could write it, and it'd be okay. But with George Saunders, it's all, he has like such a unique style. You could read anything written by him, and you would know immediately that it's him. But I think that's why you can't necessarily give advice on how to break the rules if your advice is, have really good voice or style. <laughs> Cause it's really hard to teach that. <laughs> and, it, and as a screenplay right. writer. And,
0: you and, and luckily, like it can't be taught. Luckily it can't be all reduced to math because then we'd all be out of jobs. You know, then like a yeah. uh, Google uh, like, could do a deep fake of a <laughs> novel and it would be just as satisfying. We all say, oh yeah, great. When you are drafting your new novel what advice from Matt helped you?
2: Usually when I draft a novel, the only thing I pre-plan is characters. I uh-huh. I just kind of write out all right, what are they dealing with when they go into the story? Why is the story going to engage with that? And then how are the characters together going to deal with that? And then I just try to think about um a couple plot points that might shape the overall story. But mostly for me it's it's a lot of the character stuff, but then when I revise, I'm looking at a lot of the structure. So I'm thinking about, I mean, even if you look at um, both in *Weird Future's Zen* and the story we were just talking about in the weird restaurant, halfway through the story, there's like a, an a, the clock speeds up. Her brother calls and is like, guess what? I'm yes. moving out of this place earlier to than I thought. To the debtor's colony. Yeah. So you have, and she's like, well, I'll make money fast. I'll make money today. And and as the reader, you're like, there's no way you're going to make money today. And it pressures it pressures her into making a kind of an unethical decision.
1: Wait, I don't know. So this, that, it's that else, but... structure, so, you know, having the escalation half and halfway through, was that mm-hmm. something planned before you wrote the story? Or was that something you had to go back in and add later when you thought about structure later?
2: I think that one, I had been reading a lot about structure. And so as I was writing, I just sort of got to a point in the story where it felt like, okay, this is a place where a clock could speed up. Yeah, but usually I, mean, I do have to go back and work on structure a little.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the the thing I say at the end of the book is ideally, you know, neither is the case. Ideally, you're neither going like, okay, before I start, let me go ahead and apply the structure checklist and make sure I have this. Nor are you like, after you're done going like, wait just a second, let me go back and beat this into shape. You know, ideally, it's like, it just kicks in. You know, you're like, okay, as I'm writing, you know, I it's read muscle memory, but I don't know. Yeah, not, not I, every
2: I, story there needs the clock to speed be. up. But for this yeah, one, it made uh, a lot but, of
1: sense. I mean, you have to believe it. You know, you have to suddenly just, that just has to be part of the way you think about stories. You know, ideally, you're not applying the advice before or after. You're just, it's just happening automatically as you're writing. I feel in the first story,
0: the thing with the golden bracelet, that uh, chess very much uh, physicalizes the problem in a yeah. way that, and, and I think that it felt very Matt Birdian to me in a good way. <laughs> yeah. that, that like, that it wasn't like, a floating feeling or the like kind of a hunch but like she took an object that he is motivated to recover and then a lot of emotional stuff that you know is kind of more advanced and complicated and subtle can happen around that there's a physical object that was moved from one place to another one person has it the other person has it and that kind of signposted it more
2: yeah matt matt birds advice is have a have the characters exchange an object and have that sort of So, so you were relate.
0: specifically thinking about his advice when you had the bracelet? I,
2: on, I don't remember for the bracelet <laughs> specifically, but I, I will say there have been scenes and in, in things I've written where I've been like, oh, I think a, I think that advice about the object could work well here because this is feeling all a little bit too nebulous. And so maybe a, an object would sort of hammer this home a little bit.
0: So five pages into that story, I was like, how is she going to pull it off this whole thing about these two separate worlds that this kid is stuck between, it's like it, 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 she can only do it on feelings or hunches and having it sucked into it every once in a while. And, but when you brought – and I said, how is she going to manage it? When you brought in the object, I was like, yes, it's exactly how you do it, an object that's charged with meaning. And, and that makes it so much better than a lot of people are disagreeing about a nebulous issue.
1: When I think ideally, novelists can have screenwriting advice and still keep all the tools of the novelist so that you can have something like, okay, I'm going to invest these emotions in an object in a way that would work in a movie, but I can still write about how they feel all I want. Right. And I still have all the tools of a novelist, but I'm just carrying, I'm taking a little bit of the load off of the director dress. I'm taking a little bit of a load off of the uh, you know, internal narration, or um, mm-hmm. what was the what was the wonderful phrase you used about, uh, he cried tears stupidly, you referred the, to- Yeah, yeah, that. Uh, free indirect discourse. Free, I'm taking a little, little load off the free indirect discourse. I'm taking a little load off the first person or third person narration, and I'm like, okay, now that I've got an object carrying some of the emotion in the way that would work in a movie, then that gives me more room to be more of a novelist and to still communicate emotion directly in a way that a screenwriter could not do.
2: You're right, they still have, they can take that advice and still use novel <laughs> tools but what happens when novelists read advice for screenwriters and they feel like, OK, this is what I need to do. And so then they neglect some of the novel tools. Maybe not. Re- maybe they're not reading other books or maybe they just feel like this is, is a is new era.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I do. That does happen. You know, I read people's novels and I give them notes and I just want to yell at them like, you can tell us what they're thinking. You, you know, you do yeah. not, you, they do not have to keep crossing their arms. They do not have to keep, <laughs> yeah. you know, having an eye twitch. You can actually tell us what they're thinking. And screenwriters are so jealous of you. Screenwriters just desperately wish, of course, if you're Scorsese, you can just have endless narration and, and think that that's filmmaking. It's not, but- you... oh, wait, You're saying that Scorsese <laughs> is not a filmmaker. I'm saying by the time you see The Irishman, The Irishman is made- by... but okay, okay, so- I'm saying that, yeah, you watch a movie like The Irishman, and you're like, "My God, it's just all voiceover." You've lost all, all of the language of cinema at this point. Uh, it's uh, it's terrible. But uh, anyway, but I feel like it happens all the time that I read books that do not that lack interiority, where I'm like, "This person has read too much writing advice. They don't know that they can just tell us how this person is feeling in first person, certainly. Think- but even in third person, you mm-hmm. can tell us how the person's feeling and thinking you know, with ev- how the person is feeling and thinking." without having to embody it in the weather or in body moments or in an object or in anything. And it frustrates me, you know, and I'm sure it frustrates other people. Hopefully it frustrates agents. Hopefully agents are telling their authors the same thing that I tell them when I give them notes, which is you can't just tell us what you're thinking. A lot of my career has been like telling people like Blake Snyder's great, but let me do some correctives to blake snyder which has been a lot of my career and i think that blake snyder is the most popular writing mm-hmm. i would say that probably the most popular writing advice book for novelists is save the cat a book that is written explicitly and i believe only at the time it was written it's for an screenwriters. absolutely poisonous book that's only for hacks that is not true there's a lot of good stuff in that book but it just
2: it is way too simplified but i think it's a great starting point
1: <sighs> i find it to de- yeah if you're gonna sigh book. sigh into the mic a little more <laughs> okay <laughs> do that sigh. My okay that i found james it a depressing science. book i found it a mechanical book it's so mechanical I found yeah. it was um, it's cynical it's so cynical i worry about this you know so this is something james is worrying about it's something i'm worrying about too as someone who wrote a writing advice book coming to it from the world of screenwriting and now you know focusing more and more on novel writing this is a real problem so and Parker you're you're we're all three in agreement on this
2: Yeah, well, and what I worry about, too, is that novelists feel like, actually, I should make my novel as much like a screenplay as possible, because TV and movies and video games are what people want, and and book sales are on the decline. And I, I just think that people think, oh, I have to keep up with more visual media, I think, especially since I write for teens, people are thinking, I have to compete with the video games, and I have to compete with the TV. And so I need to make my novel similar to the visual media.
0: Yeah, I just have to make my novel a shitty version of TV.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, the, that's you what, have and to that's take a of
0: what a novel could do and nothing else can do.
2: Ray Bradbury is one of my favorite authors, but he, me too. Me too. He, he always talked about how actually he wanted his writing to be made into movies and he didn't want a single thing to be changed because when he, he said, when he wrote, he wrote in movie scenes, like he wrote it visually so that it could be transferred directly into a visual media, which always surprised me because what i like most about his stories is the voice he has such beautiful language and such strange things happening so it's weird to me that he felt that way
1: this you often get people who they're like you know they're like oh you want writing advice here here's some writing advice and you're like you just advise the exact opposite of what you've done here i think
0: maybe thinking in terms of visually dragged ray bradbury far enough in the direction that he needed to be dragged in order to write great vivid books Yeah. maybe he but like Maybe we just have to accept that he wasn't utterly in control of his gift and did not utterly understand what he was doing. And you shouldn't be. And you shouldn't be as an artist. You should yeah. be kind of riding the wild animal and letting it take you somewhere. And the one thing, piece of advice will pull you in one direction. One piece of advice will pull you in another direction. And if you have craft oh, and if you have instincts and if you are lucky, then you become Ray Bradbury. And if not, you become... James <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you, but you see what I mean. We teach what we most need to learn. To a large extent, that's true of my book, that I wrote a book about how to write differently than I write. And, you know, James is always after me to like, oh, let me take one of your screenplays and tear it apart on the thing, tear it apart on the podcast, because, you know, it's like, oh, look, this proves, you know, that your your advice is, is hypocritical. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, I was just giving advice that I wish I had gotten, and I still wish I could get. I still wish someone would tell me how to do all this stuff that I'm telling other people to do in my book.
2: I do feel like... Oftentimes when I'm writing a scene, I do try to think of it visually, like how would it look in a movie so that I can make sure I'm not just sort of writing a shapeless blob of my thoughts, but then I'm not that good at visualizing things anyway. So I don't think I take it all the way to the point where I'm making it into a movie on the page and I'm missing out on all the other things that it could be as a novel. But I do kind of use that as a tool. Like, let me stop and think for a second I'm kind of stuck. If this were a movie scene, what yeah. would I be focusing on or or what can I describe as like happening between the characters and less just me thinking about all the all the weird ideas? So I think, you know, going back and forth I think is a good tool.
0: Yeah. So it's a it's a clarifying thing. Yeah. It's something that can keep you honest. You're not gonna tell Proust don't do a three-page metaphor about butterflies or whatever because it couldn't be in a movie. He's not going to listen to you anyway. I think that's the thing. A genius isn't going to listen to Matt Bird anyway. Yeah. But for the rest of us who do fall under his Wait. demonic sway, <laughs> like we have to understand like he's one tool. What you're saying was very interesting to me, this kind of tension between the anarchy of the creative impulse and these rules and the kind of anxiety that rules bring upon you like well only successful people successful people follow these rules look jk rowling did it uh uh the hunger games lady did it so you should do it too and did they in the moment of creation actually follow these rules or were they just riding that horse as well and how much are we doing ourselves a disservice by following these rules and how much are is it helping us
2: yeah. The stuff that I like that I've written is all the stuff that is craziest and that other people read and say, I don't understand where this is going or what you're trying to accomplish. And I'm like, but, it's, but I love it. I just really I love this story. And I have a book that I have not managed to get published. It's my favorite <coughs> thing I've written. And everyone who reads it is like, the structure is strange the characters are I'm not connect. you know everyone's like every element they're like but I'm like but I love the structure and I love the characters I love everything about it so it is hard because and then even with where futures end I had a great time writing it because I thought it would never get published and then it got published and every you know critical response is great but a lot of reader response is like I don't understand what is this what is this book trying to do And so then I'm like nudging myself more toward trying to find something that connects with an audience a little bit more, but I don't find I enjoy that as much. And so as I'm writing and trying to be like, okay, try to make a choice to the people would like, I'm like, nah, like, I just, I don't want to, like, I just don't like that. So it it is hard because I, I don't know if I want a lot of people who read YA books to read my book, I should probably write very differently than I'm writing. But the way that I like to write best is, is the way that maybe isn't following all the rules but i i think learning the rules has helped me because even then i can break them in a way that is maybe a little bit more meaningful
1: exactly exactly <laughs> i feel like i feel like this is what i just have to keep saying to defend myself from the jameses of the world is that the james you know of the world. is that the more tools you have great right, like exchange then, an object yeah one them, touch yeah like these are these are specific tools and then the more you have that's adding. That's not subtracting. I think like, it it's never it been say, tools, not rules. Tools, not rules. Yes, mm. exactly. And it's never been my goal to say that oh, this is not allowed, or stop doing this, or you're not allowed to do this. Always been my. Which certainly, Blake Snyder says a lot. You know, stop doing this. You're not allowed. But when you have something is literally goal. called a checklist, then a grade grubber
0: says, <laughs> well, if I want to get an A, I should get all the things in the
1: checklist. It's but but I specifically say your story will suck if you score perfect on this checklist. And And, you
2: know know, I I follow so many of the tips and the tricks, but I've never I've never looked at the checklist as something that I could go through. I just kind of figure this is just showing which movies which tricks and tips. But I, I don't I mean when you post the checklist of a movie, I actually don't, I just kind of scroll through it really quickly. I don't usually look at it. I just want to know the tips in depth. And so I've never actually mm-hmm. kind of followed the checklist for my
0: own book. I never read those. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, you know the funny thing is I know because of the nature of the document, that's the shit that Matt works on the hardest. Well, I have to,
1: but, then, but then <laughs> that generate, oh nobody God. reads them. That generates nobody them comments. So, no, I know a lot of people. Don't nobody read comments. I posted one of those and you like corrected a fact that was buried in the middle. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, he actually read it. But I think people I comment on It's like when we did the Leica episode, <laughs> yeah. we talk about like some contentious – Thing. I tell people that you should not be checking off everything on this list, and you will have a horribly formulaic thing if you do. And I obviously I can't say that enough, and I don't say that enough, but I, I really cannot mean it more than I than I do. I really, really believe the that. The name of and your book should be Ignore This Book. Ignore. Well, no, that's what is the second
0: to last... The final rule. You, you mean the the thing that you read after you've read every other <laughs> thing,
1: and you've probably already held out of the book at this point. <laughs> page after you've thrown the book across the room, what you did not read was page three hundred and thirty-one, chapter thirteen. The final rule is forget everything I just this said. This is the opposite of <laughs> you Fight You did Club. not even let me <laughs> <say>. <laughs> the first rule of Fight
0: Club is don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> The last rule of Secrets of Story is forget every, all
1: the Secrets of Story. Forget everything I just said is the last rule. I should have made it the first rule. I should have begun with Wait, before you start reading this book, do Don't not pay attention book. to anything in this book. Do not read this book. It's forget everything you're about to read. That's the first rule of Secrets of Story. That's also the second rule of Secrets of Story.
2: I think they provide some sort of stepping stone between here's my crazy idea that no one is going to get if I try to just put it on a paper, but if i kill it and just write what people want and expect then i'm basically just mcdonald's so if there's a if there's a stepping stone between where it's like hey you're used to you're used to one thing but can i lead you to something different but if you just start out like hey you're used to that but i'm doing something totally different people are going to like well i don't know how to bridge the gap but maybe those tools can be something that sort of bridges the gap between this might be mm-hmm. weird but there is this character who's being misunderstood you can relate to that and like you do see he has an object like you can figure that out and so now let yeah. me lead you over to where it's getting a little crazier and there may be less rules over here
1: yeah yeah when you say
0: what people want and expect uh, you're, you're calling it a mcdonald's thing like, yeah things that actually became super popular nobody wanted or expected them yeah, nobody wanted
2: very Apple Star Wars
0: or, or
1: expected it. Nobody no, wanted yeah, people, Harry Potter or expected it. I mean, J.K. Rowling was told, "Nope, we've got a universal rule that we're not allowed to do boarding school books anymore." You know, that's that's right. strictly forbidden. No one's dumb like, like rules <laughs> from some other age that
0: don't mean anything anymore that are worn out um, that somebody wrote a book about that got published. Yeah. Uh, um, it, 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 yeah, no musicals anymore, somebody probably <laughs> said at some point. No, no more Westerns, somebody said it at another yeah, point. No.
1: no, certainly nobody wanted Star Wars. Do
0: you no. want to be great or do you want to be competent? <laughs> do, you to, do you want to die ashamed?
1: Okay, so where are we, guys? I must say, I'm happy with this episode. I feel like we are, we're just talking about how you don't want to be ruined. We all agree that screenwriting advice can lead novelists astray yes and that it does lead novelists astray that it is in some ways had a negative overall impact on the novels that are being written now that are being published now that they are too reliant on blake snyder they're too reliant on screenwriting advice i don't Uh, think we've touched this enough quite frankly but i think we've said this i think this has been said but parker is there anybody you
0: want to in particular say you want to throw under the bus on this
2: (laughs) I was going to say, the reason James thinks he hasn't touched enough is because he wants me to specifically <laughs> throw someone under the bus.
1: <laughs> which I just can't do. You know, I think we're all in agreement here. We're all in agreement that it can be very bad. It has been bad. God, whatever bad. somebody says we're all in agreement, I immediately am a hackle. <laughs> up, and I just don't, I don't like it. Negative trends, but I think we're also all in agreement. Well, I think Parker is certainly saying that my advice has had certain concrete benefits for her novels. I don't I know if James suppose. is saying that. Is... I, I, I guess maybe, James, you would not say that? No, no, I, I would say that. And I've used object exchange. I've used a
0: bunch of things, the, but there are certain things that, like, it, it's, it's not... Com- it's, it's a tool, uh-huh. but it's not a rule. Tool, I, 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 I think I, that's an excellent
1: way of putting it. The thing, I, I, I think it's,
0: it's very easy to fall into the sway of a Svengali who seems to have all the answers. And it's more dangerous when you're not even doing something in the genre that the person is, immediately, is, is actually... <laughs> gaining most of their examples from
1: yeah I mean it's, so you feel like you feel like my advice has had some negative impact on you as a rare yes yeah. The, the, but also positive, you, but also negative. Yeah, but you feel like you have said, like, oh wait, Matt Bird went to prove that and you have not done stuff. Some And then you, you explicit should have done notes and, that you've given that have been so scathing. Oh, well, that. I mean, and, 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 like, that's one thing. Poisonous. There's there's one thing of like actual notes I've given you, which are, you know, everybody has that issue of like, okay, this person gave me notes and that note led me astray. Like, is that a fair summation of your feelings, Parker?
2: Yeah, I I think I'm kind of in between. I mean, I think usually when I listen to your podcast, I'm somewhere in between where you guys fall, so maybe that is why this has felt less contentious, but I I also feel like most books of of any writing advice, screenwriting or novel writing, that I read, usually the whole first chapter is dedicated to making sure that you know you're a terrible person if you don't follow this exact advice, (laughs) and I always (laughs) am just like, I just roll my eyes, like whatever, I'm going to take the pieces that I like and I'm going to leave the pieces I don't like. I don't remember that happening with Secrets of Story, so maybe that is that is something also in your favor then just to, to say that you you have tried to get, get on the side of tools not rules
1: yeah i wish you had i wish i had known that phrase before i wrote my book <laughs> but uh yeah but i still use the word rule on the book but i know I, I very much intentionally did not use it in the book but um well parker thank you so much for coming on
2: yeah thank you for having me on this is a, this is a really fun conversation
1: all right so everybody go out and buy parker's new book Hopefully, uh, James is going to have a new book for you to buy soon. Hopefully, I'm going to have a new book for you to buy soon, because we both have books that are on editor's desks being evaluated right now. And we're going to keep coming out with episodes of this podcast. We would love to talk to you again in the future, Parker.
2: Thanks. I'd love to be on again.
1: Thanks. (laughs) Go and sin no more. Thanks. I'll uh, talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to SecretsOfStory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James' novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at JamesKennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com SecretsOfStory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at secrets of story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hannon and Keim. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.